You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. It was in the news this week that George Pell, the highest Catholic uh, priest in Australia, has passed away. And let me tell you, I normally don't celebrate many people's deaths, but I do in this case. Here to join me is Wonder Producer, my producer, Amanda Coolen. Hello, Russ. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, joyful. I, I'm norm- not one to normally celebrate the death of one. But um, the death of George Pell is uh, good news to a lot of survivors of institutional sexual abuse. Yeah, I did see your post on Instagram about it and you were very careful to say that you don't like celebrating people dying but that this was a big one for you and for many, many people, many survivors. Mm. So just tell us how you felt as a survivor when you heard this news. I felt relief, to be quite honest. And I think I'm whispering the sentiments of uh, many survivors of abuse. I, I, I can recall when George Pell was first dragged before the Royal Commission Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse and some of his responses, and he's reluctant to answer the questions fluently uh, at the Royal Commission. And, and like anything, ducking and weaving and you know, and people will be kicking doors and smashing things in the cells. And- so this is like when you were in jail, people were... People were smashing things in jail when they heard that George Pell was getting just at the evidence. Just at the evidence he was given, and his reluctancy to to sort of to answer the questions properly. You know what I mean? And ducking and weaving, and you know. So people were get... physically, you know, reacting to that. Hundred percent, hundred percent. They were reacting to it, and you know, there's and what you know, what's sort of coming out in the wash for me uh, with the the work I do at the Voice of a Survivor, like 60% of people in prison uh, are abuse survivors themselves. 60%? Yeah, around about 60% of uh, people that are currently incarcerated uh, uh, have suffered some sort of physical or sexual abuse. It's just uh, an astonishing statistic, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, I mean, through the work I do at the Voice of a Survivor, you know, the indicators of abuse survivors, obviously drug addiction, propensity for violence, self-harm. Yep. Um, homelessness, and these are just all the uh, you know all the things that happen to survivors after they've been abused by the likes of these Catholic priests that have seemed to have free a- access to children for a very very long time. So, for those that may not know, I mean, gosh, if you haven't heard the name George Pell, you must be, must have been living under a rock for a while. But for anyone that doesn't know. George Pearl, Catholic priest, I think he was ordained in the 60s mm. and, uh, and went through to become the highest serving Catholic priest in this country and ended up all the way at the top in the Vatican. Yeah, he wasn't far off. He could have been, you know, he was that, that far advanced. He could have, I think he was even in line to be questioned as one of the next popes. Are you serious? Wow. Mm. A little bit of, you know, history on George Pell. George Pell 
was the architect of a thing called the Melbourne Response. The Melbourne Response was a blueprint for how they treated priests when they were had been exposed as being uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse. Um, in that blueprint, George Pell, when I say that, he was the architect of it. He wrote it and he showed them ways to how to give them uh, paid victims hush money. He showed how to move priests around from one diocese to another after they'd been exposed as abusers. And it's, you know, you can use the analogy right here, right now, is if a dog starts attacking uh, sheep, you just move them to another paddock where there's other sheep and, and don't, and you know, and the expectation is for them to go on and abuse again, but just hopefully they can minimise the abuse that they do. And that was the, that was the tape that George Pell's sort of approach to, uh, uh, you know, uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't... No, I mean, you can't move that problem away because those people will still continue if they've got that opportunity. And, I mean, the I think it was around 50 grand that he was offering victims, wasn't it? And was that part of the Catholic Church's strategy to minimise compensation payments? Because 50 grand's not um, a lot of money. No, it's, it's not, not a lot of money considering the damage that uh, these priests do to a lifelong, uh, you know, lifelong torture for some of these people, which includes imprisonment, drug addiction, homelessness, mm. um, uh, confusion, mental suicide. torture. Yeah. Suicide, obviously. Suicide's been a massive thing. And um, George Pell, rightful position should have been, uh, you know, because he's acting under canon law. So part of that canon law is if a priest gets uh, exposed for being a pedophile, you don't have to bring the police involved. And, uh, and and I think that's just bullshit. That should just be, mate, as soon as I, his, per, his job should have been, okay, you've been exposed, it's been an accusation of you, there's actually proof of you doing it, we've got to hand you over to the police now. And I guarantee that would have uh, been a great deterrent for all priests not to do that thing. Because, you know, the, the priesthood became... Uh, uh, some of a, a thing that appealed to pedophiles, just like the police force is now, because we're having similar similar things where there's a lot of these police are having access to child pornography. It's becoming a, a common theme within the police force. Is it? I, I don't know what sort of person wants to strip search a twelve year old kid. I don't know what's in that. Like you must have some sort of like a mm. tendency to do that sort of stuff. So. Mm. But there's been, a, 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 in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, lot of police that have been uh, charged with accessing child pornography. But back, that's just a whole different topic itself. But the the, the, the priesthood become a haven for pedophiles. And, and it was, you know, I mean, most, I, I, I doubt very much any of them had any religious beliefs at all. I, I, you know what I mean? These pedophiles, like out of boredom, I read the Bible about three or four times in jail. Mm. It didn't say anywhere in that Bible that it's, it's okay for you to, to touch children. On, on the contrary, on the contrary, mm. you know, Jesus says that somewhere in there a couple of times that, you know, hell, like hell is no whatever it is, but anyone who hurt, hurts the young children will be punished by whatever. Mm. You can't say to a frail Hail Marys, damage these people for life and then you're forgiven and you can move on and do it again when the temptation sort of uh, enters you like an evil spirit, like they'd say. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think that they've hidden behind religion, many of these perpetrators, for a really long time. So is it still the case that if a priest perpetrates sexual abuse on a, a young person that they are protected? Or has yeah, that canon law, law. So canon, canon law is still, still a thing? 
yeah, canon law still applies to them, you know what I mean? And they don't, I think, you know, a few years ago, the Pope himself said, no, we won't be, we won't be reporting these, these deviates to, uh, to the police. And it's not something we're going to change in a hurry. It's been, uh, the, the, it's been, you know, I think it's canon law has gone on for a couple hundred years where they've not had to do that. They've not had to be accountable like anyone else would be. Even Joe blogs down the street, gets caught for abusing the kids. He's got to go before the police has got to be, you know what I mean? I, I think that the push is at the moment, there's push right now for someone, if they have an awareness of that abuse, that if they don't report it, they're going to get charged. Hillsong's Brian Houston, uh, the founding member of, the, one of the founding members of the Hillsong Church, he got charged after the Royal Commission because he admitted in the Royal Commission that he'd covered up child sexual abuse mm-hmm. uh, of his father and he, in fact, tried to give uh, a, a survivor slash victim uh, hush money mm-hmm. uh, and they had a meeting, a well-documented well meeting at a, a McDonald's, tried to give this uh, person, um, 12, I think it was 14 grand, offered him 14 grand to shut up. He didn't do that. Now, Brian Houston got charged with accessory after the fact I think, I, I really, really think that they done George Pell massive favours and not charging him with that. And, and, and I, I, I can't for the life of me understand why they didn't charge him with accessory after the fact because those people would line up from here to Melbourne. Mm. There was that many people that reported what had happened to them and George Pell just covered it up, paid him the hush money, offered him the hush money, moved the priests around, but in the end there, it just becomes so loud because so many of them were doing it. It just comes so, I don't think he had anywhere to move them anymore. So, mm. and that's, you know, brought the attention of the Royal Commission Institution response to the child sexual abuse. I, for one, when I seen that Royal Commission going after George Pell and the likes of Brian Houston, I thought, well, hey, hey, mate, these people must be fair income. And that's when I put my hand up personally to tell my story of abuse and, um, and it changed my life, and it, you know, and it, and also it exposed a lot of the abuse that went on in the boys' homes. Mm-hmm. No different than what got on with the Catholic churches. But the, you know, you, could you imagine how the survivors of that abuse, the Catholic Church abuse, were feeling when they seen a former Prime Minister Tony Abbott going to visit George Pell at that stage, a convicted pedophile in prison, mm. um, when you had former uh, prime ministers like John Howard saying, oh, look, he's not a bad bloke, uh, social commentators like um, Andrew Bolt swearing by him that he was a great, he was a great man and everything like that. I, I, for one, I'll tell you something now, I don't think he was good for those charges that he got found not guilty of, but I'll tell you what he's good for. He was good for thousands of charges of the accessory after the fact. Mm. I really, really believe that. I think there was the evidence on that was overwhelming, mm. um, and I don't understand why the Department of Public Prosecutions didn't go after him for that. And I'll tell you something now: if they did, he'd still be in jail now. I have, well, he would have died in jail, and because uh, he wouldn't have got the medical treatment, he wouldn't have got the medical treatment in there that he would have been getting out of. So he would have died a lot earlier in prison, and, and it would have been celebrated. Let's go back. He was serving in a parish in Ballarat from, I think, the early 70s to the early 80s. Um, And I think that's where some of those accusations came from, didn't they? Yeah, 100%. Hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Ballarat was a hotbed of child abuse. Mm. There was so much going on. There was a, uh, a detective called Dennis Ryan 
that was um, report and, and and he gave evidence at the Royal Commission where he'd um, he'd personally spoke to uh, to to Pell about the abuse that he had witnessed. He would he, he was a he was a copper in um, I think it was in Bendigo or and out at Chuka and places like that. So he was a copper. And what was happening is they had a deal. He would drag the pedophiles in, say the pedophile priest in, the pedophiles would say, you don't know what you're doing. Um, and then the, the Crown Sergeant at the police stations would let them go at the back door uncharged. And that was part of this connection because back in them days, a lot of coppers were Irish Catholics and um, or just of Catholic faith mm. and uh, and they couldn't stand the thought of their church being denounced by pedophiles. It was just a big systemic thing where these priests were highly protected, highly protected and um, and lived, you know, they're going into people's houses and like, you know, um, my partner was telling me about like uh, her parents were doctors and, and the priest would come in and the priest would get the best china, the best, the best food and how they, they were treated like gods themselves. Mm. No one full and people know full well the whispers were going that uh, that these people were pedophiles, but they were still treated like with so much dignity. I mean, you know, leaders of of churches were. I grew up in a Catholic household, and the priest was always invited over. And I'm not saying those priests were involved in anything like that, but my parents liked to have the priest over for dinner and give him a glass of sherry and cook a meal for him. And that's how mm. parishioners behaved because they revered these people, they respected them, they were part of a community. It started well. The allegations from Phil Scott started in 2002. Melbourne guy accused Pell of sexually abusing him at a Catholic youth camp in 1961, mm. um, when Phil was 12 years old. And I think George Pell wasn't a full-blown priest at that stage. I think he was in the seminary. There was an investigation, but they found that um, you know because it was a historical case, there was not a lot of you know forensic evidence. The complainant had a bit of a credibility um, issue because he'd been involved in some crime, which, as you've just mentioned, is often the response from people who've been sexually abused. Um, mm. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of evidence, and so things were sort of inconclusive, and Pell said he'd been exonerated. It took another 10 years before the Victorian police um, started to investigate some of those reported crimes. It was such a long time to go. And then another, what, five years before... Anything else happened? The case of uh, Brian Houston, when that was, he admitted at the Royal Commission. He said, yes, he did He did have that meeting with that kid. He did uh, try to offer him money and it took him 12 years. Now, there's a little bit of a, a backstory to that. That kid ended up getting cancer and they expected him to die. They expected him to die. Whole, lo and behold, he tries this revolutionary cancer treatment and he lives. And he lives, this mm. bloke, right? This bloke's a hero. But it still took him 12 years after the Royal Commission Institution response to the child sexual abuse to charge him on the same evidence. The evidence didn't change one bit. At the time, Brian Houston was Prem, uh, Prime Minister uh, Scott Morrison. Morrison's uh, mentor. But still took 12 years. You had a bunch. You had the New South Wales Police Commissioner was part of the, the, the Hillsong Church and many other Liberal uh, or LNP ministers were part of the Hillsong Church. You know, I, I I could take the inference that favours were done for him. They had the expectancy that this bloke would die. If he died, the case disappeared. But he hit this treatment. He got on that. He survived. And the voices weren't going away. The media were asking questions. Why anybody? 
on a weekly, weekly basis. Why ain't, he, why ain't this going away? Why ain't mm. this going away? And at the same time, we've got Prime Minister and a former Prime Minister vouching for George Pell and you've got you know, all these right-wing journalists like your Andrew Bolts and that vouching for George Pell. He's a good bloke. I'm telling you, if they charged George Pell with accessory after the fact of abuse, there would have been hundreds and hundreds of cases. Man, he would have got what he deserved a long time in jail. So he was convicted back in uh, 2017. They charged mm. him with a series of sexual assault offences and he spent, I think it was, was it a year in jail? It wasn't long. Yeah, about that. I think it was about a year. Mandy, he, he had the most expensive, he had a, a barrister called Brett Walker. And Brett Walker in, in legal circles is commonly known as 1T because his name's spent with, uh, Brett is with 1T. Oh, yeah. Um, and his daily rate is $50,000 a day, his daily rate. So Who paid for that? The, the Catholic Church? Yeah, the Catholic Church. They paid for that. So without Brett Walker was the hero of, from the Catholic Church's point of view in this sort of thing because without someone like, like it's, it's just a person like Brett Walker is a magician in court, basically. He can make anything disappear or whatever. But if he never had the likes of, if he had legal aid, a legal aid lawyer representing that, mate, he, that conviction would have stood would have stood. He wouldn't have even got to the High Court of Australia. Mm. You know, I think first a first appeal in uh, Supreme Court appeal was um, upheld. So then he had a second one and then they found that there was a little, I think it was two to one or something like that and they sent it to the High Court. But um, if he was just, man, if, if, he, if he could, if he was given the legal teams that his survivors or his, his victims would have ever had to use, man, he wouldn't have got that result. There's mm. no way. There's no way he would have got that result. Do you think that there was a sort of, oh, look, go and do a year, go and do a little bit of time, we'll keep people happy and we'll, we'll, we'll get this all sorted for you? It was almost like a token thing that he had to go and do to show that you've paid a little bit of a price and then we'll get you back to the Vatican. 100%. And, and they got him out of here swiftly. You know, if, if they charge him what I, I say they charge him with, the same thing that they're charging Brian Houston with now, his court case would have rolled on because there would have been hundreds of people come forward. There would have been so many people willing to come forward, like the people at the Royal, people, the, the victims, uh, survivors, give evidence at the Royal Commission. You would have had hundreds of people saying, I did, I reported, this is what happened. I told him personally, this is what was happening to me. Mm. And he basically just swept it under carpet, slipped me a couple of grand or whatever it was, Move fucking father fingers from fucking one parish to another, and um, and then happy days. But I'll tell you something now: if he was charged with that chart, that charge would have been his trial would have went for five years. Easy. But let me tell you something: whilst he was in jail, he would have been treated with kid gloves. He wouldn't have been treated like any other prisoner. There would have been a directive from you know the commissioner of corrective services to keep him separate, uh, segregated. And more importantly, to keep him safe, because it's not a good look. It's not a good look for uh, creepy services when someone like George Pell ends up with a set of black eyes or mm. some broken bones or something like that. Yeah, you yeah. know the prison justice. You know the prison justice. There, if the inmates get hold of someone like that, um, I, I guarantee you they'll think twice before they ever touch a kid again. So he went to the Melbourne Assessment Prison. Have you heard of a Melbourne... Map, yeah, it's called the Map, yeah. Right. What's that like? Uh, it would have been a place where you wouldn't have stayed too long. Um, I think I think places like that, I think you stay a maximum of three months or something like that. It speaks for itself. It's an assessment prison. They, they, they're going to decide what sort of uh, security rating you got. He would have got a minimum security rating straight away. 
and uh, moved off to a uh, minimum security prison from there. Or, you know, he would have been done favours, like some of the minimum security uh, prisons are, are out of the uh, Melbourne CBD and, and so often uh, hours away from uh, uh, people's support networks. Um, so he might have been done some favours. He might have been kept there as a privilege uh, so uh, his legal team can see him all the time and prepare his uh, you know, high court appeal, which end up happening. He was sentenced to serve six years with a non-parole period of three and eight months. Um, yeah. And apparently he served just over a year, 404 days in prison and much of it apparently in solitary confinement. Mm. Now that would for have, his own protection. So that would have been for his own protection, yeah, right. 100% okay, yeah, protection, yeah. From your time in jail, you've done over a couple of decades in jail. What did you see happen to pedophile prisoners? Look, when I first went to prison in the 80s, the prison officers were really, um, they were a different breed then. They would give you access. They would say, oh, look, I'm about to uh, go and get a convicted pedophile. I'm going to walk. I'm going to bend down and tie my shoelaces up. Prison officers don't have shoelaces in their boots. It was just code for, I'm going to turn my back. And if I turn around and old mate had a bit of a mischief, I'm going to turn like, you know, so so the prison officers had set them up so you could fucking jump a fence and bash them or do whatever you want, throw hot water on them or whatever and give them a bit of prison justice. And that was then, generally happening in the 80s, was it, where prison guards were Yeah, it was that? generally happening. And then, and then the pedophiles smartened up and they started uh, suing corrective services as a duty of care to, from, you know, for, uh, for protecting it, for not protecting them. Mm. So, and then I think the uh, memo went out to all the prison officers that uh, you can't be doing this sort of behaviour mm. uh, and people were getting sacked for, you know, people were getting sacked for setting pedophiles up. But, um, you know, I mean, I, like I, I was accused of once um, uh, bashing a pedophile in a prison. Uh, you know, they had a 17-man task force trying to find out who were the pe- people who... Hurt this uh, pedophile. This bloke was the first person ever in Australia to put in rolls of films. Back in the day, where you put in rolls of films to the chemist to get your film developed, where he'd been overseas, take doing all these bad things to kids, and he went to get them developed. Um, and it was the first case of that. But this bloke was placed in a mainstream prison. Uh, was un- he was unearthed from the papers that came out in the newspapers, and we were reading the newspapers going, "Oh man, this bloke's he's away at court at the moment." And we- then we get this thing to sort of say, hey, listen, he's going to be back in the prison this week. Uh, and, um, and you know, that bloke wore a toupee. The funny part about that bloke wore a toupee, when the screws found him, his toupee was covered in blood on the ground and the screws thought he'd been scalped. Oh, but, uh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not laughing because he got bashed. I'm laughing because yeah. that's quite amusing. They've scalped him. They've scalped him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> You wouldn't laugh about that if it was a normal human being, but, um, you know, because of the ferocity of the fucking violence. But the matter is you can laugh at it because it's a fucking pedophile. Who cares? The damage that 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 he's fucking hair being covered in blood is nothing, no damage to the poor girl who's been prostituting herself with shame and embarrassment to get money for drugs and the desperation and the mental fucking torture that these people caused. And I know that firsthand, that torture being a survivor myself, that you know what I mean? And, and it's like, it, you know, you, you watch the TV, you watch the news and, you, and you're laying in your cell and you see, you know, a per, uh, fucking per, uh, perpetrator getting 20 counts, just getting three months or no non-custodial sentence and anger and it's like, fucking, we don't matter. You know, kids don't matter. 
Then you see a bank robber go up and get 20 fucking years and you think, where's the fucking justice? Mm. Like, there's none. But I've got a theory on pedophiles themselves. I, 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 and, and people say, you know, why do these pedophiles get such low sentences? And I'll tell you why. Because they keep the wheels of the justice system oiled. They create the next drug addict. They create the next person for a propensity for violence. They create the next prostitute. They 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 create the just fucking next dysfunctional, the next fucking homeless person. So that you know, and if you've got the the drug addicts, keep the fucking wheels of the justice system going. They keep the judges, keep the parole officers, keep the prison officers, keep the police officers. They keep, it's like a stimulus that keeps it's them a all machine. in. All, yeah, yeah, it keeps them all in jobs. So why would they fucking white start wiping them out, and giving them twenty and thirty year jail sentences? That 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 pedophile has a purpose for them it's to keep them in jobs i think one day russ we need to get someone on who's an expert in sentencing and talk to them about that and just break that down a little bit more and see you know why that is the case because that that fascinates Mm. me a, a little bit in that this is a heinous crime and it does cause so much you know it's like a domino that just has ripples that goes out and, you know, mm. like your own experience, it changes trauma. the trajectory. Trauma. It changes the trajectory of people's lives. 100%. And they're trauma machines. They create fucking trauma. Yeah, they create, yeah. you know, it's fun. Like at the Voice of the Survivor, I have these blokes and I just know and it. It never surprises me. And I might have been the toughest, hardest fucking man in the prison system. And this guy that's fucking been in solitary for 10 years, lived on his own and gets around with fucking shackles on his ankles and handcuffs and a fucking security belt. He's in EHR, extreme high-risk overalls. He's escorted in fucking like three or four cars, Mm. you know, and then that bloke rings me one day and goes, mate, I just want to talk to you about the abuse I suffered. And I just look back, you know, I rewind the tapes on him and I go, fuck, it all makes sense now. Mm. And the point of that fucking violence or whatever it starts to stem from that person is the abuse itself. That's how they deal with it they start to fucking act out. They start to hurt people because fucking they never want, you know, as, and they start to send a signal that you'll never fucking hurt me again because I'll fucking really damage you. I'm now this extremely violent person that doesn't fucking allow people to do that to me no more. I'm no longer vulnerable. You will never be able to hurt me like that again. And You come to me and I'll fucking make examples of you and you people and, they'll be, and that message will get across loud and clear. And and you know that from your own experience, right? So mm. did you did you go through that really angry, violent stage mm. when you were young? I definitely went through the anger stage. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I was never, ever convicted of too many violent crimes. You know, I, I was convicted of armed robberies and, you know, that's the lower end of the scale of violence where I was never accused of bashing or anyone hurting someone, anyone in, a, in, in an armed robbery. And I don't. I think I still had a bit of a conscience about that sort of hurting people. I didn't, mm. you know, I, yeah, I just, from a young age, I just had that thing in me. I didn't really want to fucking hurt people. But because I was more so into hurting myself in the way, I, you know, I use drugs to the point of obliteration. You mm. know what I mean? I use drugs to the fucking, on the precipice of death. You know, that's where I, my drug addiction took me. And, um, you know, and, and then there's the fucking, and then there's the sad poor people that just took their lives, thousands and thousands mm. of survivors that have taken their lives because they cannot handle the fucking mental torture that's been perpetrated upon these, uh, beyond the, you know, upon their fucking poor souls. Yeah. And they no longer have a voice. Yeah. You know, they can't speak from the grave and it's up for fucking people like myself 
to fucking speak loud enough so fucking their voices are heard. And that's what this podcast is about today, isn't it? Really, it's, yeah. it's you wanted, you know, you called me this morning, you wanted to do this and, mm. you know, this is a timely subject and you're passionate about it and you're passionate about survivors. And like you say, there are some people that can't speak for themselves and I know that you're Voice. I mean, the name of your company is Voice of a Survivor. You want mm. to help people who have gone through this trauma and those that haven't had the opportunity to get help. And so on that, you know, when this news came out the other day, there was a bit of chatter in the news about um, after George Pell's death, how it's affecting survivors and for survivors. Yeah. What happens when a survivor hears the mainstream media talking about sexual abuse or survival or, or perpetrators or this kind of stuff. What happens? Man, I'll tell you, I watched the, um, I watched the, an interview with uh, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews and Dan Andrews just come out and they said, because, oh, will there be a state funeral for him? And he said, no, definitely not. He said, definitely not. The bloke's a grub. And, and, and Dan Andrews went on to criticise Tony Abbott, Andrew Bolt and all of those fucking right-wingers that loved him. And I, man... I don't, you know, I don't come into Victorian politics, but I'll tell you what, that bloke's got my vote for mm. fucking saying, he goes, mate, that bloke was a grub. Mm. He goes, okay, he, he had his conviction overturned, but he was good for other things. And I think he even brought up the Melbourne response. Mm. Rod in hell, Rod in hell, Pell was, uh, you know, a, a slogan that was written on, on, the, on the doors of one of the uh, Catholic churches in Melbourne. And I think it, it really echoes the attitudes of survivors about the likes of this fucking rat, George Pell. So how does it trigger survivors when this stuff's in the media? How does it trigger you when you hear this stuff? As a survivor, you have the abuse itself. It's constant. It never leaves you. You can do as much therapy and fucking mm. brainwash or whatever you want. It never leaves you. The nightmare never leaves you. And um, and I think the, the Pell death sort of gives a little bit of peace to that. I think uh, it just gives a little bit of peace to that. It gives a little bit of satisfaction. Okay, the grub is dead because we're you know wherever you go in in the next life, I believe that you've got to be accountable for what you've done in this life. And he's uh, he's he had an opportunity to make a massive difference, and he chose not to. He made that uh, he could have been a hero or a devil, mm. or a hero or a villain, and he chose to be a villain. And all villains got to pay a price. I you know I had to pay. Uh, a price for my villain behaviour, which was 23 years in prison, and um, you're, but you've paid a bigger price for what happened to you in the boys' home. That's that's been 100%. the ultimate price that you've paid. 100, and you know, and that, that you know that was never factored in no. to any sentencing procedure that I ever went through, mm. except for the last one when it was finally recognised after by a judge who said, "Look, mate, you know what I mean. I don't think you have served the amount of times in jail that you've served." Uh, and, you know, if the abuse didn't take place and the drug addiction and all that sort of mm. stuff. And I, I got put a post up yesterday on, on TikTok and some fucking imbecile jumps on there and goes, you know, not everyone that gets, you know, you know, a lot of people who don't get abused don't go down the same uh, track as you. They don't use it as an excuse. I've never used it as an excuse. I just fucking use it to make sense of it all. I don't think you use it as an excuse. I think what you do is you, and it took you many years to talk about it too, is yeah. that you have come to see that that trauma has impacted your life and impacted the choices you've made along the way and that it probably wasn't where you were headed, you know, if that yeah. hadn't happened. What would you say to victims who this week have been triggered by this news and what do you suggest to kind of help them? 
through this moment because his funeral's coming up and it's all going to be mm. – it'll be just an ongoing trigger until until he doesn't – he no longer is in the news cycle. Mm. Now's the time. Now's the time to speak up. You know, you're as sick as your secrets, so they say. And for my own – for my own journey, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, that whole anxiety of not speaking up and not speaking out was worse than the actual the event itself of actually speaking out. It's actually become a relief. I think the more I talk about my story these days, because a perpetrator's greatest weapon is the victim silence and shame, mm. you know? Mm. But that, so, that shame belongs to perpetrators themselves. I talk, uh, the analogy I use is I carried a backpack of stuff that didn't belong to myself and me, and that was like, you know, the, the shame, the embarrassment, the anger. When you tell your story, you're handing it back to us right alone, and that's the perpetrator himself. They're the people that should carry all this shame and guilt and all these mm. horrible shit. Mm. They're the ones that that. So, you know, let the journey, the healing journey begin and, you know, fucking tell a friend, tell a, someone, you know, just tell someone about that story about what happened to you and don't let it fucking torture. The more you talk about it, less it tortures you. And I guess reach out to friends, to family, to people who can support mm. you and any of those professional services as well because... Oh, man, I'll tell you, I yeah. can't recommend fucking uh, Relationships Australia. I've done four years of trauma counselling through them. It's a free service that you can get on. And, uh, man, I, I, I started there and far out it's been... Did so that blow your mind when you were doing that? Did that open yeah, your yeah. eyes? 100%. Like, uh, you know, that uh, you know, it wasn't my fault and... Um, and, um, you know, um, just, I don't know, it became quite soothing to have someone there to bounce things off mm. and, and, and not be judged, you know, and not being fucking made to feel like some fucking weirdo. Mm. And, um, and, and you know, to, to, for me to know that I wasn't going through that on my own. Yeah. And um, there was others and, you know, and, and I don't know, it's been a, it's actually been a really good process for me. It's still, look, you know, I, 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 I'm a heroin addict and I can fall over quite easily. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and not so long ago I did. And, um, you know, and um, I got back up on my feet. And it just makes my foundations by telling my story a lot stronger. My foundations for my recovery, my foundations for my life become a lot sturdier when I can get this stuff out of me and, you know, I can soothe. And it's like... I don't know. When you tell your story, it's like fucking putting a fucking bushfire out, you know. That's, I guess I could use that analogy. It's like putting a bushfire out and, 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 you know, and getting on and having fucking creating some, instead of having a life full of bad memories, starting to create a life full of fucking nice memories, you know what I mean? Like And being proud of who you are and looking at what you're achieving. Oh. And, I mean, Russ, I mean, I've been working with you for less than a year, but you know, what you've managed to achieve with this podcast has been truly inspirational. I've never worked on anything like it in my f few decades in the media. And, I, you know, I think what you do is you stay humble and you own your shit and you also encourage people to be authentic and vulnerable and that's what mm. you are every time you jump behind the microphone. So, you know, I know there's a lot of people that appreciate that and we're, none of us are perfect and whether it's addiction or other things, you know, we all fuck up and mm -hmm. owning those fuck-ups and, and facing the trauma and facing the, the demons is part of being human. So you're doing a good Thank job. You. Thank you. I really appreciate that, the kind words. I really appreciate that. I get, geez, I get a lot of feedback and, you know, it's that self-belief that comes back. We're telling your story. What happens is... um. You're allowed to learn to love yourself again, learning mm. to, when you learn to love yourself again, you start to get self-belief, you know, and that self-belief self of worthiness, I am worthy, you know, I, I do matter, 
Um, I'm not just some fucking object. That self-belief has been a process and um, getting that self-belief back and, you know, and, and believing that my voice is worthy and, um, and I'm worthy. And, um, and you know, because what happens, these abusers, they take all that off you. They just make you feel like an ins- insignificant piece of shit. But to sort of start work back from that and start to work into some self-belief is very, very important. And I think, you know, and that's why these people fucking ain't punished enough for the fucking damage they cause. They cause more damage than a bank robber will ever cause. They'll fucking cause more damage. And I'm not just minimalising what fucking bank robbers. I've caused traumas from my bank bank robbery days. And you've spoken about that for ages and you've apologised for that. But, you know, in terms of human suffering and ongoing ongoing trauma, ongoing um, mental illness, like you say, homelessness, all of those things, they have generational Mm. effects. They also uh, can really harm families. I mean, families who are dealing with um, members of the family who are addicts can go through hell and back for decades, sometimes their entire lives, and people that have lost uh, family members to suicide and all of that. It has so many ripples. Yeah, and that was a – I think the Royal Commission was really good for that, like, you know, that – Julia Gillard, and I call it the greatest prime minister country. I'm with seen. you there. You know, I've got a Julia Gillard mug. I've got an actual mug from Parliament House. Yeah, I'll fight you for it. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, and you know what? I, I just I'm a big fan of Julia Gillard's because it took balls to do what she did, and she had so much opposition against that. Abbott was the opposition leader at the time, and he was jumping up and down because he was going to be a fucking priest himself. Yeah. And Scott Morrison, all of these fucking rats were voting against it. She took a big, big step out and, you know, and I, I think personally the Royal Com- that Royal Commission only just scratched the surface. Mm. I don't think it got to the real fucking heart of it all because, you know, I have friends that worked in that Royal Commission, people I know that are, and, and they said they were just scratching the surface. It never went for long enough. But, look, it was a start. Um, I am a grateful fucking, a great, I've got so much uh, gratitude towards Gula, Julia Gillard and I hope to, down this, hopefully this year sometime we'll get her on the podcast. Yeah. We have an opportunity to thank her for, for what, uh, you know, playing a part in my healing process and, and the ability for me to create a really good life off the back of the Royal Commission, you know, and I pray, I've created a life that's beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, because of her tenacity. And I guess that's the message to other uh, victims too, is you can change your life, you can change the trajectory, you can speak out, and you're an example of that, which is awesome. So I guess we're going to see more of uh, the George Pell story in the media in the coming weeks as the funeral happens. Not going to be a state funeral, as you said, which is is good. Good, thank God. His his remains will be sent back, though, to St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. I hope the pigeons all shit on them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I guess for victims over coming coming weeks, just to take care of yourself. Yeah, be kind to yourself, man. Reach out, man. I'm on... I'm on platforms, I'm on Instagram and stuff like that. I answer every single message that gets sent to me. So if anyone wants to reach out, it might take me time sometime, but I will yep. answer every single message. Awesome, Russ. Take care of yourself, hey. No worries, mate. Thank you for being on the sticker. Just a little in, uh, backup, backstory to Mandy. Mandy's the fucking brains of the operation. I just do the talking. Hardly. You are uh, you're a machine, Mansa. This year, mate. I'm going to light it up, I'll tell you. Good on you, Russ. Thanks for inspiring people. And uh, you won't hear from me for a while because I'll be behind the scenes, but Russ will be back next week. Thanks for your support, all our listeners. We really appreciate you guys. We're going places. Listener.